welcome to my podcast, Murder, Mystery, and More. Thank you for listening. This is episode 14. True Crime Tuesday, the Texarkana Moonlight Murders. The Texarkana Moonlight Murders was a series of four unsolved serial murders and related violent crimes committed in and around the Texarkana area in the late winter and spring of 1946. They were attributed to an alleged unidentified serial killer known as the Phantom of Texarkana or simply Phantom Killer or Phantom Slayer. This hypothetical perpetrator is credited with attacking eight people of whom five died in a 10-week period. The attacks occurred at night on weekends between February 22nd and May 3rd. Targeting male-female pairs, the first three attacks were at Lover's Lane or quiet stretches of road on the Texas side. The fourth attack occurred at an isolated farmhouse in Arkansas. The murders caused a state of panic in Texarkana. Throughout the summer, residents armed themselves and at dusk they locked themselves indoors while police patrolled the streets and the neighborhoods. Stores sold out of guns, ammunition, locks, and many other protective devices. The attacks took place at intervals of three to four weeks. Investigators speculated that the attacks were the work of an unidentified serial killer. The first attack happened on February 22nd. At around 11.45 p.m. on Friday, February 22nd, 1946, Jimmy Hollis, age 25, and his girlfriend, Mary Jean Larry, age 19, parked on a secluded road known as Lover's Lane after having seen a movie together. The area was approximately 300 feet from the last row of city homes. Around 10 minutes later, a man wearing a white cloth mask which resembled a pillowcase with the eyes cut out appeared at Hollis's driver's side door. He shined a flashlight in through the window. Hollis told him he was the wrong person, to which the man responded, I don't want to kill you, fellow, so do what I say. Both Jimmy and Mary were ordered out of the driver's side door. The man ordered Hollis to take off his goddamn breeches. After he complied, the man struck him in the head twice with a pistol. Mary later told investigators that the noise was so loud that she initially thought Hollis had been shot, but it was actually just his skull fracturing. Thinking that the assailant wanted to rob them, Mary showed him Hollis's wallet to prove that they had no money, but she was then struck with a blunt object. The assailant then ordered her to stand, which she did, and then she ran. Meanwhile, Jimmy had regained consciousness and alerted a passing by motorist, who also called the police. Within 30 minutes, Bowie County Sheriff W.H. Bill Presley and three other officers arrived at the scene of the attack, but the assailant had already left. Mary was hospitalized overnight for a minor head wound, Jimmy was hospitalized for several weeks to recover from his multiple skull fractures. Jimmy and Mary gave conflicting reports of their attacker. 
Mary claimed that she could see under the mask and he was light-skinned African-American. Hollis alternately claimed it was a tanned white man around 30 years old, but conceded he could not distinguish his features as he has been blinded by the flashlight. Both agreed the assailant was about six foot tall. Law enforcement repeatedly challenged Mary's account and believed that she and Larry knew the identity of the attacker, but they were covering for him. The next attack happened on March 24th. It was the first double murder. Richard Griffin, age 29, and his girlfriend of six weeks, Polly Ann Moore, age 17, were found dead in Griffin's car on the morning of Sunday, March 24, 1946, by a passing motorist. The motorist saw the, the car parked on Lover's Lane, 100 yards south of U.S. Highway 67. The motorist at first thought they were both asleep. Griffin was found between the front seats on his knees with his head resting on his hands. His pockets were turned inside out. Moore was found sprawled face down in the back seat. There is evidence that suggests she was placed there after being killed on a blanket outside of the car. Griffin had been shot twice while in the car. Both had been shot once in the back of the head, and both were fully clothed. The blood-soaked patch of earth near the car suggested to the police they had been killed outside of the car and placed back inside. Congealed blood was found covering the running board, and it had flown through the bottom of the car door. A 32 cartridge casing was also found, possibly ejected from a pistol wrapped in a blanket. No reports indicate that either Griffin or Moore were examined by a pathologist. Local rumors said that Moore had been sexually assaulted, but modern reports refute this claim. The third attack happened on April 14th. Officers searched for clues on Morris Lane. At around 1.30 a.m. on Sunday, April 14th, Paul Martin, age 17, picked up Betty Jo Booker, age 15, from a musical performance at the VFW Club. Martin's body was found at around 6.30 a.m. later that morning, lying on its left side by the northern edge of North Park Road. Blood was found on the other side of the road by the fence. He had been shot four times through the nose, through the ribs from behind, in the right hand, and through the back of the neck. Booker's body was found by a search party at around 11.30 a.m., almost two miles away from Martin's body. Her body was behind a tree lying on her back. She was fully clothed. She was posed with her right hand in her pocket of her buttoned overcoat. She was shot twice, once through the chest and once through the face. The weapon used was the same as the first double murder, a 32 automatic Colt pistol. Martin's car was found about 3 miles away from Booker's body and 1.55 miles away from his own body. It was parked outside Spring Lake Park with the keys still in it. The authorities were not sure who was shot first. Sheriff Presley and Texas Ranger Captain Manuel Gonzalez 
said that the examinations of the bodies indicated that they both put up a terrific struggle. Merton's friend said that he did not believe an argument had happened between the victims and that Merton had not had any enemies. The next attack was on May 3rd. Friday, May 3rd, sometime before 9 p.m., Virgil Starks, aged 37, and his wife Katie, aged 36, were found in their home on a 500-acre farm off Highway 67 East, almost 10 miles northeast of Texarkana. He was sitting in an armchair reading the newspaper when he was shot twice in the back of the head from a closed double window. Hearing the sound of broken glass, Katie came from another room and saw Virgil stand up and then slump back down into his chair. When she realized that he was dead, she ran to the Wall Creek telephone to call the police. She rang twice before being shot in the face twice from the same window. She fell, but she regained her footing. She tried to get a pistol from another room, but she was blinded by her own blood. She heard the killer at the back of the house and fled out the front door. She ran barefoot across the street to her sister and brother-in-law's house. No one was home, so she ran to another neighbor's house. She gasped that Virgil's dead and then collapsed. Prater shot a rifle in the air to summon another neighbor, Elmer Taylor, who sent to collect his car. Taylor complied, and along with the Prater family, took Katie Starks to Michael Meager's hospital. Starks was questioned in the operating room by Miller County Sheriff W.E. Davis, who became head of the investigation. Four days later, Davis talked with Starks again, and she discounted a circulating rumor that Virgil had heard a car outside their home several nights in a row and feared of being killed. The investigations of these attacks involved numerous law enforcement officers at the city, county, state, and federal levels. Notable investigators included William Hardy Presley, the Bowie County Sheriff, who was the first lawman on the scene of the first three attacks from 1895 to 1972. Next, Jackson Neely Jack Runnels, 1897 to 1966, the Texarkana, Texas Chief of Police, who was among the first called to the scenes of the two double murders. W.E. Davis, the Miller County Sheriff, who headed the investigation of the Starks murders. Max Andrew Tackett, 1912-1972, Arkansas State Police Detective, who was the first on the scene of the Starks attack and the arresting officer of the lead suspect. Tillman Byron Johnson, 1911-2008, a Miller County Chief Sheriff's Deputy who is one of the leading investigators on the case. He became the go-to man for the coordinating of the case and kept several case files which survived the official files which went missing. He was the last surviving lawman from the case, and he was often contacted by interested parties, including television producers. Manuel Lodewolf Gonzalez, 
1891-1977, a Texas Ranger captain who became the public face of the investigation by holding numerous press conferences. He was criticized as a showman who presented the work of other officers as his own. He spent a great deal of time with female reporters. Five years after the murders, he left the Rangers to become a technical consultant to the entertainment industry. The Griffin War murders raised public concerns, but they were generally taken as an isolated incident. Officials did not publicly connect the early Hollis and Larry attack to the murders while the Phantom Killer was active. The Martin Booker murders thus greatly alarmed the public to the likelihood of a serial predator. The deaths of these two church-going teenagers shocked the community. Booker had been a popular high school junior, a sorority member, and officer of her high school band, a winner of scholastic, literary, and musical prizes. She was a former Miss Texarkana. Her high school ended classes early, so that hundreds of young people could attend the funerals. Curfews were set for businesses in an attempt to keep people off of the streets at night. It was additionally at this point that the hypothesized serial killer was dubbed the Phantom Killer. Hysteria grew the days following the murder of Virgil Starks in his home. There was a constant media coverage of the increased police activity. The Texarkana Gazette stated on May 5th that the killer might strike again at any moment, any place, at any one. For a week, police were inundated with reports of prowlers. One officer stated nearly all of the alarms was the result of excitement, wild imagination, and near hysteria. Previously, it had been normal for houses to be left unlocked. The murders alarmed residents into taking precautions with security, locking doors, arming themselves with guns. Some people nailed sheets over their windows, some nailed windows down, some used screen door braces as window guards. The day after Stark's death, stores sold out of locks, guns, ammunition, window shades, and Venetian blinds. Additional items of which sales increased included window sash locks, screen door hooks, night latches, and other protective devices. Guard dogs were sought in local want ads. Because citizens were considerably nervous and armed with guns, Texarkana became a dangerous place. When calling on an address, law enforcement officers would turn on their sirens, stand in their headlights, and announce themselves to keep from being shot by a nervous homeowner. Gonzalez fueled the hysteria when he announced on May 7th that citizens should oil up their guns and see if they are loaded. Do not hesitate to shoot if they feel it necessary to use them. The fear was significant enough to spread to other cities, including Hope, Lufkin, Magnolia, and as far as Oklahoma City. After three weeks without an associated murder, Texarkana's fears began to lessen. The concern lasted throughout the summer and subsided after three months had passed. Throughout the investigations of the Phantom Killer case, almost 400 suspects were arrested. There were numerous false confessions investigated by police. 
One recalled nine people who confessed to being the phantom, but their statements did not agree with the facts. In the Hollis and Larry case, no suspects were apprehended. In the Griffin and Moore case, over 200 persons were questioned, and about the same number of false tips and leads were checked. Three suspects were taken into custody for clothing, two of whom were released after officers received satisfying explanations. The remaining suspect was held in Vernon, Texas for further investigation, but was later cleared of suspicion. The 1976 movie, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, was based off of this baffling murder case. Thank you for listening to this episode of Murder, Mystery, and More. Please make sure to follow or subscribe so you do not miss the next episode.